1: This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation.
2: Hello, Irrational Fear listeners, Dan Illich here. This is one of our semi-monthly spin-off podcasts from Irrational Fear called the Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. So don't freak out if it sounds a little different. Just enjoy the ride. This is my co-host for Goompoog, long-time climate change industrial complex worker, Lynn Doe. Lynn it's been a while.
3: Dan, it's been so long. You've changed in lockdown. What is time? <laughs>
2: I know. My hair is uh, definitely out of control, but thankfully...
3: People can't see us. It's, it's the dream. Otherwise, they could tell that we haven't been outside in, you know, months on end. Um, we're looking a little bit pasty.
2: <laughs> That's okay. I, I live by the beach, so I've got a nice tan about me. Now, in this podcast, Lynn and I look at a few climate stories from the previous month, and I have a conversation with someone who's doing great work in the climate space. This week's chat is one of my favourites. It's with one of my heroes, Saul Griffith, who is an inventor, scientist, engineer, energy nerd. He's writing policy for Biden and trying to get the US and Australia uncoupled from fossil fuels and go completely electric with renewables. Um, do you know much about Saul's work, Lynn?
3: Yeah, I do. I don't know if I'd call him a hero, though, but the work he does is truly amazing. <laughs> um, I think, you know, one of the coolest things about our semi-monthly, you know, again, what is time, is that we get to interview super smart people and get them to give us all the answers in a way that's super digestible.
2: Yeah, great. And in a second, we're going to be chatting with another one of those kinds of people, former Wallaby, David Pocock, about his new climate campaign with the sports community, The Cool Down. I'm recording my end of the greatest moral podcast of our generation on Gadigal land of the Euronation.
3: And I'm on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin people.
2: Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming,
0: a rational fear... ...is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders, good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought... ...greatest... ...mass extinction... ...moral... ...we're facing a man-made disaster... ...podcast... ...to the climate criminals... ...of our generation. All of this with the global warming and the, that and a lot of it's a hoax... The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goom
2: for short. Okay, let's uh, rip straight into the climate news. First cab off the rank, the call down. This week, climate activist and uh, former Wallaby rugby union superstar David Pocock has launched a brand new campaign to get climate action on the agenda of sports-loving leaders. Joining us now is David Pocock himself. Welcome, David.
4: Hi, Dan, Lynn. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you. Hey, uh, congratulations with the launch of the Cool Down. Uh, what's the reaction been like so far?
4: Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 been positive so far. We've got I think over three hundred and sixty athletes from thirty plus sports who've put their name to this, calling for the Australian government to really up their up their game on on climate action. You know, this is something that the majority of Australians are concerned about and want more action. And you know, I think it's it's everyone's responsibility to be talking about it more and to be pushing for, for action at the national level.
2: Yeah, this is great. It's like you you have so many ears and hearts attached to kind of that community, the sports community. It's so great to see them pushing for action themselves as a community. Do you think this will be attractive to the
4: sharks loving
2: Scott Morrison?
4: <laughs> I hope so. I, I mean, I think the thing, you know, the last 10 years of climate policy in Australia and just how insanely politicized it's it's been i think we often lose lose sight of the fact that this is something that's going to affect every aspect of our way of life as Australians you know including the sports that we love and you know as an athlete <sighs> When you talk about things outside of your, your sport, you open yourself up to all the usual mm. criticisms, you know, stay in your lane, you know, shut up, mate, stick to sports. Literally stay in your lane. Yeah. Please. Run yeah,
3: faster. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and, you know, in, in the face of something like climate change with, you know, worsening extreme weather events, um, you know, making thing, life a lot harder, sport probably isn't the most, it definitely isn't the most important thing. The thing thing we're saying as athletes is that, you know, we are people who have families, we have kids, we're part of communities, and we love this country and we want to see a thriving future. Trying to draw the people's attention to the fact that this is going to affect sports, and it is already affecting sports, you know, a part of Australian life that people love. And as you kind of alluded to, we, we see politicians using sport for their game because they know how much it resonates with us as a country. Yeah.
3: Yeah, one of the I- things that I definitely um, remember growing up in Australia is, you know, half of the news segment is dedicated to the sports bit, like half of the newspaper, you know, the back <laughs> bit, it's always the sports bit as well. We never spend that much time focusing on climate. What do you think, I guess, will be the difference with some of these athletes speaking out about climate to reach new audiences? How do you think that's going to make hopefully, some impact.
4: Yeah, our hope is that it really helps normalise climate action. As I said, it's such a political issue, which it shouldn't be. You know, the politics should be about which, you know, policies as a party you want to get Australia to this sort of net zero future, not whether or not we should get there or how much it's going to cost. So I think really trying to say to people that, as Australians, we love it when we're punching above our weight. You look at the Olympics, the Paralympics, you know, you see Aussies winning medals and we well, love are it. You,
2: are you trying to say that um, climate action is a race, David Pocock? Is that what you're <laughs> trying to
4: say? Are you trying to say that it's a race? And I'm, I'm saying it's a race and I'm also saying that we're running dead last.
3: Sometimes it feels like we're not even in the race. And I have to admit, I spent a lot of this morning thinking back to the Stephen Bradbury moment at the Winter Olympics. <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, we're about to swoop in at some point. Is that going to happen? But.
2: Well, I don't. I think that analogy is terrible because it implies that all the other stronger countries fall
4: over. And we that need that. <laughs> that is true.
3: That is true. It's a bit
1: mercenary.
4: I mean, you're you're spot on. You know, this is we're running dead last, and we're refusing to even play by the rules. So we all we all know we need to do better than that. We can do better than that, and that's maybe the other thing that's that's missing from the debate in Australia is you hear politicians talk about oh the costs of action, but one no one's talking about the costs of inaction, which are. You know, hard to even comprehend if you believe scientists. But then also the opportunity for Australia. We're the sunniest, windiest country in the world. It's insanity that we aren't a renewable superpower already uh, or well on our way to becoming that. So I think it's, you know, it requires a real change in mindset around the debate. This is an opportunity for us that we have to take because, you know, as Australians, we love places like the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, other just incredible parts of this country, the the Daintree.
2: Even even from a sport focus, Dave, like, you know, Kids playing soccer in the middle of the day on a weekend is going to be extremely difficult in a few years, particularly in places like Western Sydney. Like it's the heat islands that are going to be attracted around school zones, around tarmacs, around around playgrounds. Like being being a young athlete is going to be harder than ever. Like it, it's going to be so difficult. Your your brain capacity um, loses capacity as carbon dioxide fills up the atmosphere. Like these things that these things are just going to be. Uh, really, really hard to do in the future. Like, like f- sport has a lot to say. Like, I don't feel like, I don't feel like you have to say much, you know, <laughs> you, you, yeah. can say, you can say like for the longevity of our, of our, of our children's future or the longevity of, of, mm. of sport in general, like we need proper climate action for sure. Yeah. One,
4: one of the, one of the guys who's signed the, the letter and is really leading on this is Pat Cummins, uh, mm. yeah, one of the best fast bowlers in the world. He's got and, to stand
2: outside and out in the, in the sun for so
4: long. Well, and you know he he grew up. He got to start playing cricket in Penrith, and you know scientists are saying that places like Penrith are heading towards mm. heading towards fifty degrees Celsius days in summer. Like, yeah. try playing a summer sport where you're standing outside all day in fifty degrees Celsius. Yeah, in 2018, Penrith was
2: was the hottest the city in, in the, the world. world. Yeah, yeah.
4: So you know th- this is. This is real. It's here. And, you know, there's a long list of how it's already affecting sport from early retirements at the Australian Open, bushfire smoke forcing a number of events Mm. to be cancelled, relocated. Um, And then, you know, the thing that probably to your point about kids is probably not front of mind for most people is the effect that this is going to have on regional communities, communities where, as well where sport is such an important part of of life you know it's where people can come together and we're already starting to see some of those sports clubs really struggling to afford their premiums which are going up due to flood and fire risk mm-hmm. and then in the you know in the recent drought there were a whole whole bunch of regional grounds that were just too hard like they couldn't water them they are rock hard they're too dangerous to play so you, know, <laughs> you can't use those grounds anymore yeah. all these things that we we you know you don't really think about when you hear someone talk about climate change but you know they're increasingly real and you read the latest ipcc report and you know the time for action we have to we have to be upping our game
3: Yeah, and I think these everyday consequences um, are just the reminder that sometimes an IPCC report can feel a bit abstract until you boil it down to here's this activity you love doing that you might not be able to do in a couple of years time. What would you say to all of our listeners in terms of how could they maybe raise and start this conversation within their communities, sport or otherwise? Because, you know, it's not the normal thing that people expect. Any hot (laughs) tips?
4: Well, having just launched the cooldown I'd say you can you can head to the cooldown.com.au and, and join and sign alongside your favorite athletes but then you know in a, in a day-to-day thing this is something we should be talking about as a community and should be on the news most nights this is something that we're going to have to adapt to and you know if we if we act really strongly as a country and show some international leadership we can avoid some of the worst that is to come should we should we not act so Talk about in your community and then obviously the politics, you know, all this individual action doesn't add up to much unless it's scaled by politics. So get hold of your local politicians and then, you know, we've got an election coming up. Uh, Vote, like vote for your future. Vote for the future of your kids. Find a a candidate who is going to make decisions in the best interest and that may be an independent, you know, and if there isn't someone... Consider rallying around someone or, or running yourself. This is just—it's so important that we we begin to take action soon.
2: David, I, on the political question: Will we see in the future national teams not going to the lodge or not going to Kirribilli House to spend time with the Prime Minister for a Photoshop with a harbour in the background? Is that something you can see in the back in in the future for national sides? deciding to make a call on climate and say, no, we, we, won't, we won't be part of Scott Morrison's photo
4: opportunity? Well, we're seeing climates, you know, start to really gain, I guess, consciousness around, around the world. When You know, when you look at businesses and climate mm. risk is starting to factor in, um, you know, we, we this really interesting uh, push in the UK around um, legislating ecocide as a crime, you know, to me, that really points to people are increasingly going to say, no, that's not, that's not good enough, and we aren't going to support or associate ourselves with companies, individuals, leaders who aren't taking this seriously. So uh, it's, it's not unimaginable.
2: Question about your the community you're building uh, and the letter and all the signatures you're getting. What happens next?
4: I guess it, at the moment it's really trying to show support for strong, bold, ambitious climate action in Australia and trying trying to normalize the, the debate around that. I guess the second thing is trying to push this idea of everyone having to be part of this. You know, I think there's been one of the real failures in in my mind of, of the sort of climate movement or people who want action is there's there's almost sort of this this purity tests in a way like if you if you fly you have no right to be saying that australia should be you know committing to bolder climate action and you see it like if you ever if you ever post something on social media there oh, are a lot man. of trolls out yeah, there. Trolls troll, trolls,
2: on Twitter saying, oh, how many kids yeah. do you yeah. have? And I'm like, yeah. well, I don't have yeah. any kids. And I can't but offset my car. I can't but offset my electricity. <laughs> uh, I don't own a house, but if I did, I'd electrify yeah. everything. So, you know, whatever. So,
4: so you know, there's that. There's, you're, you're not perfect, so how can you even talk about this? Then the other thing is, is, like, mate, you're just a dumb rugby player who's probably had way too many concussions. What the hell do you know about? <laughs> it's really... You know, those two things is 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 one, pushing for good national policy. You don't you don't have to be perfect to do that. And two, you don't have to be a climate scientist to want a livable future. You've just got to listen to the climate scientists. And you know, what we've seen through COVID is that when we actually listen to these people who've spent their lives trying to understand these things that most of us can't even, you know, get our heads around, things tend to that's because we've had too yeah, many concussions. Things tend yep. to turn yeah. out better <laughs> than if we just, you know, plough on on our own course. So why aren't we listening to climate scientists?
2: Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Greatest Moral Podcast of our generation. And thank you for all the advocacy work that you do for climate and the environment in general and social justice in, in sport because it actually has a tangible, meaningful effect. And it's great to see you,
4: you do Thanks it. Thanks so much, Dan. and, and Thanks for all the humour you bring to it. I really appreciate it. It can be pretty dire pretty <laughs> at times, so it's great to...
2: No worries. If we're in the same room, I'd ask you to pull my finger. That'll be great. <laughs> Thanks, David. <Cool.
4: laughs> Thanks, David.
2: You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Pretty interesting, Lynn uh, you, You're facilitating, you know, a, a, a whole session on sport and climate. It's sport sport, climate soon. Like, what are you bringing to that that conversation for for that conference coming up at the end of September.
3: It's so much of what um, Dave was sharing, right? The, we have so much elitism, unfortunately, in the climate movement sometimes that you have to be perfect before you can say something or you need to have three PhDs in all of the <laughs> different hard science areas. Yeah. But it's that recognition that the more we talk about if climate's going to be impacting everyone, then everyone needs to figure out exactly what that means for them, their sector, their community, whatever that looks like, and mm. helping those individuals take action in a way that makes sense. So this sport positive thing actually came out of the UN Framework um, Convention on Climate Change, which is the same body that governs the Paris Agreement, and it's that recognition that if, you know, if you counted the membership of some sporting clubs around the world, that makes up a small country equivalent. So what would happen if, you know, Manchester United came on and declared a bunch of different climate targets, both for their grounds, the way they operate their team, and, you know, what they encourage their fan base to do. So I think it's just taking climate, a little bit like what we're doing with this podcast, right, outside of that wonkery realm.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting because people look up to those brands and they look up to those teams and whatever their teams are doing, they'll 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 also do that as well. That's such great position, like positioning those brands in a place of leadership and climate action is is really exactly. powerful. It's, exactly. It's not unlike if Australia was a good actor on the world stage in climate, we could also be a leader and encourage others to do good things on climate as well. So, yeah. Your I think
3: reputation matters, um, and I think where you lend your reputation and your voice as well again, is super important. Again, I think back to, um, do you remember a couple of months ago, Ronaldo was uh, at a press conference, I think it was, and there was a bottle <laughs> of Coke there. Oh, yeah, sort and
2: he replaced it with water. Yeah, and yeah. he
3: replaced it with water. And obviously for me, I was like, oh, my God, it was still a plastic water bottle. But it's that recognition of if you're going to be a, top athlete why would you be promoting that kids essentially drink sugar and then the impact that that had on you know the stock value of coca-cola for the next you know couple of days is just that indicator of the signal that the sports community or other communities could be sending to their fans
2: well i want people listening to this podcast i'm drinking a cup of tea so i can't wait for the stock value of what am i drinking Majority to go up, to go up go.
3: exactly yeah. positive brand association. That's what you are, <laughs> top influencer. Look,
2: I think uh, because we had a special guest, we've probably run out of time for the climate news. I think there's I one think thing we do. Should- <laughs> I think there's uh, one thing we shouldn't mention though is the ACF survey, um, which just came out this week, which is incredible. They found that every single electorate uh, Australians want climate action. That's amazing. 60%, 67% of voters believe the government should be doing more to address climate action, including a majority in all 151 national seats. This is, this is such a huge survey. This is amazing.
3: And it's the narrative that we haven't been hearing, right? We've been hearing that this is something about, you know, regional communities versus inner city, like in latte-sipping latte people, tea yeah. sipping people. <laughs> but actually every single community wants climate change and maybe what action they want looks a little bit different, but the direction that everyone wants to be heading in is definitely the same. We need to be and doing And the difference more.
2: between the city and the regionals is negligible. It's like 3% exactly. difference. Like it's in the 60-somethings percent. It's like so when Michael McCormack or, or other than that, nationals say, Well, you people in the cities, you don't understand. Well it's actually you people in the regions also understand, understand.
3: And would want you? more or less exactly the same thing. Um, I think this would be really cool if it could be overlaid with realestate.coms. So, you know, when we're browsing property aspirationally, <laughs> not because we can afford anything, <laughs> but we can figure out, you know, what community should I be living in if I either want to spend all of my time changing my neighbor's opinion or spending time in my little bubble of, you know, pro climate action people. This is we're how I want to live. We're
2: all moving to the seat of Jurak, I believe, in oh, Western okay. Australia, which is about the size of Germany.
3: So, can't wait. Love it. Love it. Lynn, I want to talk about
2: COP, but we've kind of run out of time this podcast. So next, next month, let's talk about COP. And because we'll be about a month out from COP starting, it'd be great to hear from you where Australia is heading. into into COP, and I think we'll probably know more by then as well.
3: We definitely will. I mean, fingers crossed that it's even going ahead. There's been actually a call over the last couple of weeks that maybe we should postpone the conference again. If countries, um, you know, particularly emerging economies, the countries that will be most affected by climate change, can't be there because of the COVID vaccination rollout situation globally.
2: Well, that is a frightening thing to think about. Um, Thanks, Lynn, for joining us again on the Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. We'll see you next month. Yes,
3: can't wait.
2: And right now we've got Saul Griffiths. Great interview I did with him earlier this week. He is an absolute brain and uh, I'm, I'm, you, as you can hear in my interview, Lynn. If Your you brain ticking
3: it, over I'm, as you're I'm, catching up.
2: I'm a little bit too excited. I'm a little bit too excited to talk to Saul. Can't someone. wait
3: to hear you, fanboy. <laughs>
2: My guest on this episode of the Greatest Moral Podcast of our generation is Saul Griffiths. He's got a lot of titles in his life, entrepreneur, engineer, scientist, energy expert, MacArthur Genius Grant winner. He's now adding one more... Fed up with the inability of politics to meet the moment of the climate crisis heading into COP26, Saul is trying out a new title, Political Heavyweight. He's a man fully charged and ready to steamroll his way into any politician's office he can, with a unique style of lobbying that can only be described as bad cop, bad cop. Uh, Saul hopes to shock politicians into action with a big kick in the ass. Saul Griffiths, welcome to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Uh,
5: thank you, Dan, very much. I'm going to excuse you for embarrassing me with the genius comment because that was the best intro I've ever heard. I'd love (laughs) to kick some poly ass.
2: (laughs) Well, look, I hope (laughs) you don't... Well, then, My next question is is an awkward follow-up. You know, I've only spoken to you once before. I've seen you speak to lots of groups and on- online forums. Dare I say you seem uh, a little dangerous, if not a little unhinged?
5: Uh, is that a fair assessment? Uh, that's just we've had a pandemic for a little while and the long hair <laughs> that resembles the Unabomber is purely a coronavirus side effect. <laughs> uh,
2: all right. Now, the audience that listens to Irrational Fear, they're pretty smart. They've lived with the climate action journey for, you know, o- over a decade. so. I want to talk with you about big, bold ideas. Um, First of all, I kind of want to start off with personal responsibility. You know, in the climate activist world, there's kind of a policing around the language around personal responsibility. There are a lot of folks that say that personal responsibility isn't the problem. The whole notion, the carbon footprint was kind of designed by the fossil fuel industry to kind of put the onus of climate action on the user. Are they right?
5: I'm very sympathetic to the argument that there was some conspiracy and denial from the big fossil companies and that it's their fault but i don't think we should allow ourselves to not understand our role in it i find it peculiarly interesting that we have divestment campaigns from peabody coal or from bhp or from the direct producers of fossil fuels but we don't have divestment campaigns for toyota or for ford because they're those corporations, even though 2% of the world's emissions go through an engine that Toyota built or an engine that Ford built, we don't really want to blame them because it's just too close to our own personal driveway. So uh, I, I think the, the sort of failing of this logic can be seen there. Why draw the boundary at the, mach- the machines that dig the fossil fuels up instead of drawing the boundary for the machines that we own that burn the fossil fuels? That said, I think it's not easy... <laughs> It's, it's still today not easy for an individual person or household to, like, have all the solutions and, and be a perfect, upstanding citizen. But I would like us to recognise that, you know, yeah, we've just done the numbers for the US and it's very similar in Australia. About 42% of all of our emissions are decisions that are made around our kitchen tables. Um, if you include our small businesses, it's about 65 or 70%. Because around, wow. around wow. your kitchen table, you decide what fuel goes in your car, you decide what fuel heats your house, what fuel heats the water in your house for your hot showers, you decide what fuel cooks your food, and you make you know similar choices in small businesses. What runs the small business heating and cooling systems, and do they use petrol or electric? So we actually have a shocking and surprising amount of power and, in some respects, collective responsibility. That's not to blame us all for not making the right decision, because again, you know I've been doing a ton of this work in the last few years, but like still not quite economically a rational decision for a household to go fully electric and fully decarbonized. You still have to be in the very wealthy or the zealot category <laughs> <laughs> this might be a little bit why there's Tesla lovers and Tesla haters because the Tesla is the solution for the. Point one percent. The reality in twenty twenty one is it costs you ten or twenty thousand dollars more for the electric car than the gasoline equivalent. Probably a few hundred dollars more for the electric induction fancy cooktop instead of the natural gas one. About a thousand dollars more for the electric heat pump heating systems. So, as far as I like to think about it, if you can if you can afford an Audi or a Mercedes, you're a planet fucking hypocrite because could just make you could just have buy a Chevy Bolt electric or Toyota electric and, and the other things with the extra 20 grand you spent on your Mercedes, but for the rest of us, it's still a year or two or three away where the electric car production gets big enough that they're cheap enough, that the batteries get cheap enough for the side of the house, that the solar still gets cheaper and cheaper, but we're right on the cusp now.
2: I I feel that myself. This year I bought my first car in 20 years and I bought a secondhand Bought a second-hand car, but I was really looking into uh, an EV. I don't, I don't have a garage or anywhere to plug it in. I don't own a house, but at the same time, I was like, well, maybe I can get an EV and you know charge it at the Westfield or wherever, wherever down the beach where I where I live. But still, just the price is just maybe twenty grand, a little more than what I could afford. But I can feel like this car that I've got now is going to be the last internal combustion. I definitely
5: car want to out. make bumper stickers that are this is this is my last dazzling piece of shit um let me let me write that
2: down do you mind if i put that on the irrational <laughs> for your <store? laughs>
5: not at all um <laughs> i'd also like you to make one that's like my heat pump is hotter than your gas furnace um <laughs> okay. well no one sees I, that. I, it it like, sits on this side of your house you know, that's the problem <laughs> but you know the reality now in australia uh i had these numbers yesterday the it's the upfront cost that's the problem which is this is part of the reason i'm trying to get in there and to your point kick political but is um if i was driving a mid-sized australian car right now at dollar 50 a litre it's about 12 cents a kilometer and if i did an ev a mid-sized ev uh charged off the electricity grid it cost, cost me about seven cents a kilometer and if i was charging that ev off my rooftop solar it's one or two cents a kilometer so you would okay. get that money back. It'll just take you five years. So what we really need is financial instruments to help everyone afford this future. And that's the type of thing that you need federal governments to help with. And this
2: is nothing new. Like federal governments have been doing this for things in the past.
5: Oh, absolutely. Um You know, and the, the, the one way of looking at the Australian economy is this giant real estate Ponzi scheme <laughs> because we – have such explicit economic policy focused around on helping people afford the suburban everything, the house, the home, and we, we sort of are underwriting all of our mortgages. That has precedent. That was actually really began, curiously enough, under Franklin D. Roosevelt when the Great Depression had caused 20% unemployment in the US in the 1930s the majority of the jobs were lost in the regions and they were construction jobs that were lost and they realised they needed a stimulus package that would put people back to work in the States. So the US federal government invented the 25-year mortgage. It wasn't a thing before then. Before that, the reason a lot of people lost their homes in the Great Depression is they had a five-year mortgage with a balloon payment. When you get to the end of the five years, you either had to come up with all the money or renegotiate. So everyone lost their money, uh, lost their homes because... Man, that was a great scam if you're a bad Great actually. scam. Anyway, so great scam. but uh, b- imagine, like, I, I actually think about it this way. We, you think about great inventions of the 20th century and how much they changed our life.
2: No one ever talks about the but mortgage.
5: The mortgage, like, <laughs> changed everything, changed the patterns of urban development. Mm. So it was the whole thing, how we do schools. Like, everything was uh, on it. And actually, the more even more interesting piece of that history is that it was based on the car loan that was invented by a car called Alfred P. Sloan because Henry Ford was very religiously conservative and didn't believe in usury or charging interest on your car. So you had to buy your board on <laughs> You had to give Henry Ford your paycheck for 18 months and then he'd give you the car. Oh, right! Alfred God. P. Sloan came along and said, well, I know you want the car today. Why don't you just give me your paycheck for the next 18 months? And... GM, after that, went from 10% market share to 60% market share over forward in like three years. It's completely flipped the market. And it was that model of, you know, buy now, pay later that that became the, the model of the interest rate in the US. Basically, that means that the US government is subsidising and giving infrastructure quality financing to the household. So the suburbs are infrastructure. So we need that kind of thinking because we've got to, Upgrade all
2: of our homes to decarbonize. Now it sounds it sounds like we're really close. It sounds like there's like only a few years in it in terms of when uh decarbonizing our homes is going to be more expensive than it becomes the only kind of option because it's far less expensive. How long is that runway? Like how long have we got before the tipping point is where where putting in um, sustainable homes becomes much more efficient, much more cost effective than than business as
5: usual? The Really interesting political problem of your question is it's a little bit longer than the timeline we have to keep our global temperature under two degrees. Nice. So you, um, there's an uh, an easy way to say that there's a concept in academia called committed emissions. Right. That is, you bought a car last year, you just told me. That car will emit, it has committed emissions for the next 20 years as it burns petrol. Somebody who bought a natural gas, power plant last year that power plant will commit emissions for 35 years etc etc the machines that exist on the face of the world today will emit enough carbon to take us to 1.8 degrees so that's why you hear people say we should retire coal early because they're the worst emitters and maybe that'll bring us down to 1.7 or 1.6 you still end up in this situation where starting tomorrow no one Mm -hmm. can ever buy petrol or diesel car again install coal plant, natural gas, if you want to stay on that very rapid path for one and a half-ish degrees. So that, obviously, we, you know, the world only created a f- about 2% of the vehicles last year were electric. That's not nearly enough, right? That's not 100%. Because if you want everyone to buy an electric car tomorrow, the industry isn't even at scale. Where- it's like straight, like it needs to happen straight. It needs to happen straight away. away but at best, with a wartime level of effort and us like, really heavily investing in our industries to make all the solutions. You could imagine maybe it's starting in about 2024, 2025. Like we spend three or four years really foot on Great. So all, all we need is like another
2: six more catastrophic weather events to get us engaged into doing something.
5: Great. But what I'm trying to say is like, but now that you can see that the economic shift in the, and the really interesting thing about Australia is if I could loan you the money in 2022 or 2023 to buy the two two electric vehicles to replace the two cars in your driveway, electric heat pumps for your heat, electric heat pump water heater, solar on your roof, a big one, battery on the side of your house. You would be saving a few thousand dollars a year on all your energy costs. Yeah. But I'd have to loan you at that point thirty, forty thousand dollars more than you'd otherwise be spending to do it. The crossover point where it's cheaper at like not only when you're using it, but when you go into the store to buy it is probably more like 2027, 20, 2028. 20, we wait until then, we've blown through too many emissions to hit any of the targets you want. So a lot of folks who
2: kind of criticise your work, they kind of say, well, the maths is fine, but um, the reality on the ground in terms of politics is different. How does that change, Saul? How can you see that changing?
5: Well, I think you don't change reality and still you start changing the storyline and you start using some carrots as well as sticks, right? And we've really only had the stick narrative for what to do on climate for the last 50 years, which is stop this, stop that, you know, and largely it sounds like we're going to rip your middle class existence away from you and you'll live in a cold small house with a bicycle.
2: Well it, well, it just depends where that house is. If it's in Sydney, I think I could live with that. That would be fine. Uh,
5: right. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work for everyone. So I think you can now tell with a reasonably straight face that, you know, we should be able to give people an even better existence than they have now with cleaner air by largely just substituting out electric machines for proper fuel burning machines and providing with electricity. So now governments have a, an optimistic story that they can tell and you can show that it's going to create more jobs than it destroys by a big margin and you can show now that the economics are going to work for the House. Now, the economics may not work in 2021 but they're going to work in 2025 if we make the right policy choices now. So we, you've got to, got to, we need genuine leadership in the in the tradition of like what political leadership me, really means. <laughs> okay, mate. All yeah, right, yeah. all right. Don't get
2: too excited about leadership. <laughs> you- what.
5: You know, if you have no hope, you can have no hope. You have to, you have to try and lead these horses to water, and help them discover that leadership for themselves.
2: You're an Australian who's been living in America for 25 years. Is that right? Nearly. What's it like to kind of come back to Australia and be kind of around this kind of leadership we have here versus the Biden administration? From I know I understand you're doing some work for it at the moment. What's that? What's that kind of disconnect like? We
5: have to also. I understand that I went through two Bush administrations and a uh, Trump administration. and a Trump administration. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sympathetic to Republicans and some of their traditional conservative ideals, but I'm not sympathetic to crazy, unwarranted wars and whatever Trumpism is. I believe Trumpism
2: is uh, a policy based on memes. I think based
5: that's. that's a, so yeah. I think politically, I'm I'm probably a centrist swing voter. To come back to Australia, it. Uh, a few things. It strikes me that it's way more corrupt here than it was when I left 20 years ago. That is like just a shocking the nepotism seems to have been dialed way up or maybe because I left when I was 19 or 20 I just wasn't old enough to be the benefit of a a lot of nepotism yet but I'm sort of seeing (laughs) I'm seeing it now. I'm a a bit worried about the trend. Um, For sure we seem to have gutted the civil service and so I think we used to have a really strong civil service here that really believed in the country and and what was best for the country. And I think we've eliminated a lot of those institutions. That gives me pause for concern. I mm-hmm. think the best, best government happens when they're well advised by unbiased independent organizations. And I think that's historically what the Australian Civil Service did. On climate, I think we're doing terribly across the board. So I don't have to point a finger at any particular party here no one's doing a great job. I am helping uh, the White House and the Biden administration on as I describe it hand-to-hand combat with the natural gas industry and and trying to figure out what climate policy you can do and so I've been watching from the inside a lot of the three and a half trillion dollar uh, spending bill and the trillion dollar infrastructure bill and watched that sausage get made have introduced electrification legislation with Senator Martin Heinrich and have been doing work with Senator Sanders and Schumer, just really helping them with the numbers and making it add up and what sensible policy. Having seen it from the inside, the US, the, the collection of Biden policy is not yet sufficiently ambitious to avoid two degrees. So you'll hear a whole bunch of announcements and everyone will declare success, but as an engineer and climate nerd, I can add up the math, and the commitments are not yet commensurate with the reality. But it's a huge step, and then ambition brings more ambition. So, here's the thing, and we helped the the this administration learn. Like we are on the cusp of this transition, where the economics get better on the good side, on the on the Luke Skywalker side, and they get worse on the Darth Vader side. The fascinating thing about Australia is. We win first. We could be the luckiest country if only we wish to be the cleverest country. We have (laughs) the mildest climate. We have, compared to the US, we have high costs of retail electricity. We have high costs of petrol. We have high costs of natural gas. That's basically because very big, small population, big countries spread out. The geographic, geographic. disbursement of everyone. So, And then we've already, we, you know, if you wanted roughly the, what rhymes with success, you'd, you'd need this country to exist. Australian rooftop solar policy, Norwegian or Californian electric vehicle policy, and South Korean or German uh, building heating policy, heat, very heat pump centric. If you could create that country, that country wins. <laughs> and so as, Australia at least has one out of three If we did these other two, we would, you know, shit it in compared to like five years before America. We would we can do it, and we. What's what's preventing those other two?
2: What is like absolutely preventing you know heat pump policy and car policy? EV.
0: Well, the
5: heat pump policy is pretty good everywhere here, except for Victoria, who are really clinging to natural gas for heating homes. But there are even state programs in Victoria that are improving. So I think we're we're totally t- trending in the right direction. The Australian vernacular you know, building vernacular embraces what's called a mini split system, which is a reversible. It can heat your house, it can cool your house, and it's economic. So we're kind of on the right track there. We just need to make sure that we never let a new home be warmed, heated with natural gas again. We'll do it electrically on electric vehicles. I think it's culture wars, fragile white male egos, and just the lack of visceral experience of electric cars that is screwing our electric vehicle policy. But, so
2: if, if, we have an, if I have an electric car, it'll ruin the weekend. I'll have no more weekends. I know.
5: So. If you don't have an electric car, <laughs> you'll ruin all weekends. <laughs> <laughs> Forever, yeah. in perpetuity, yeah. But, you know, I'm now owning my fifth electric car. And I own four in the US. I bought a used Nissan EV200, which is like a Nissan Leaf extruded upwards as a as a minivan. It's the ugliest, (laughs) least sexy car in the world. My kids love it when we drop it. Drop them at school in it because it was a like a showroom demonstrator. So it has a giant electrical plug on the side. Oh sweet! The trauma visit upon my children's life.
2: I mean, this is, this is your kids uh, where they go to school in San Francisco. So oh, that here. would be like. That's that, here in Austin. Uh, oh, that's here. Uh,
5: that's here. right? So in, <laughs> in America, we had like the, the first few electric cars we had could barely do a hundred miles. And it was an inconvenience. And occasionally we'd be stranded by the side of the highway. But like the last electric car we had in the U S was a Chevy bolt that we leased. Mm. It was extraordinarily cheap to own and operate. It had a, 280-mile range, which is 450 kilometres-ish, and we never even went close to exhausting the battery. We could drive to the mountains, go skiing. Uh, So the future has arrived. We just haven't let it arrive in Australia, and I don't think enough people have had the experience. I I love this guy on the internet who is, like, taking coal miners for drag races in a Tesla. Daniel Bleakley, he's been on the show.
2: We've had him on Irrational Fear. Well, uh, you can...
5: (laughs) Daniel, thank you. You're doing God's work.
2: <laughs> He'll be pleased to hear that. He should drive through Austin, take you for a ride when lockdown's Ah, uh,
5: Absolutely. You know, well, actually, here's a curious thing. So I'm actually totally, I speak carburetor as a native tongue and like I sort of part of me belongs at Summer Nats. So I'm like, right. a little <laughs> sympathetic to this. I, I own some pretty cool vintage cars in America and in Australia, it's the same. The Putting a battery on the side of your house is enormously expensive because you have to pay the permitting costs and the regulatory costs and it has to be fireproof and all <laughs> of the stuff. And so you're spending $1,300 a kilowatt hour for a 10 kilowatt hour battery. So it's like $15,000 for this thing. I can yep. buy a $15,000 battery and put it in my 1961 Lincoln Con- Continental and it'll have five times the capacity of the <laughs> battery on the bottom of my house. house. So I'm really into this idea that your luck, your your vintage hot rod toys becomes the battery for your house. Out. Even better in Australia. It's like, I, you know, and I, I live near the coast and like everyone in Australia since I left has bought a jet ski. <laughs> and I hate jet skis. I have my father's philosophy that jet skis – should be absolutely legal. You're just not allowed to turn them on until you're a mile offshore, um, because the noise is intolerable. But electric yeah, yeah. jet ski turns out to do an hour at full throttle, which is what you can do with their ten. They got about a forty liter gas tank. It need right. about a hundred kilowatt hour battery, which would be about a twelve thousand dollar battery. But then your jet ski is your household battery. All your toys become your the thing.
2: This is a, this is an absolutely genius idea for getting around regulatory <laughs> red tape. It's fantastic. And if, if any if anyone's like my brother, they've got uh, a jet ski, a motorbike, uh, a second car, all sitting in the garage doing nothing. If you put batteries in all those, it'd be, he could
5: power his whole Understand. house. see, so you then take the battery out from the budget for the household, which is like the practical budget, which is all yeah. tiny, yeah, yeah. and you get to put it in the toy budget, yeah. which <laughs> is irrational and large.
2: All right. So we've spoken a little bit about your two different approaches, you know, the the, the political approach. Let's talk about the bottom up approach. Like you're talking, we're, we're talking about these people now. We want to talk about middle-class parents who've got a house and who've got all the toys. What would you say to them about kind of their own personal responsibility? What should they be looking at to kind of get on this electrification train? I think a
5: little bit of this question we answered earlier, like what is the schedule you have to do this? I think we imagine that we all have to be perfect tomorrow, right? But none of us can be perfect tomorrow. And the average water heater lasts about 12 years. The average heating system, split system lasts about 15 years. The average car lasts 20 years in your driveway. You know, your average roof lasts 20 years. And so I don't don't think we need to be incapacitated with guilt. We just need to understand that we should be preparing and saving our money so every time we make one of those consequential infrastructure of your life decisions, and there's a small number yeah. of them, we're ready yeah. to do it electrically. Or if you're about to buy a new house, take out a little bit of extra on the mortgage and, and retrofit that house so it's all electric at that moment, and that's how you'll get the cheapest finance and you'll be on the right path. So I think it's, you know, for the average punter, it's recognising that... You are part of the politics if you ask the government collectively to help enable this. The government will make the regulations make the costs drop. The government will help the industries I- expand that are making the right things and contract the ones that are making the wrong things. So become political and then prepare to just make sure, you know, that the bumper stickers are all true. My heat pump is better than your furnace. My <laughs> this is my last petrol powered car. And just prepare to like retire them. Um,
2: no, no, no. The, the bumper sticker is this is my last gas guzzling piece of shit. That's what the
5: <laughs> I used to speak carburetor. Now I speak electrons.
2: Yeah. Volts. Yeah.
5: Um, and I think that's like, I think you got to set the expectations at reasonable. And you probably won't get every household on that plan. But, you know, if we, we, we do realistically need to get 80, 90% of households on that plan, the challenge for that really is not so much for the top 20, 30% of households. They'll be able to afford it. There's enough disposable income. I think if you're really honest, the big, big hard problem here is, you know, the low and middle income homes where it's a real stretch. They're going to need, and they probably don't have perfect credit scores, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't really see a solution other than the government stepping in to help with various finance products and rebates and incentives to help everyone get there because it will be the ultimate issue if only the richest 20% of people can afford the solution. So the political risk is it will make it a wedge issue. The political opportunity is for the party that figures out the right set of policies, the electorate will go there because it means they're going to have cleaner air in their house, they're going to have cleaner air in the suburbs, they'll have safer children, They'll and, you know, the future will be saved. The week, All of the weekends.
2: Well, the Australian government is very well renowned for giving money to poor people and never asking for it back. So, I think uh I, th- <laughs> I think we'll, I think it'll be totally fine with this government.
5: <laughs> yeah, I think I think there is a challenge to the storyline here and it's just the fundamental cha- challenge for the solutions for climate change. They they all cost less to operate in their lifetime, but they all cost more upfront. So, that's why you have to figure out institutionalised systems for making it affordable for everyone and that's why I gave you those analogies of the car loan and the home loan.
2: Let's talk about grids for a second. Professor Hilary Bambrick on my Patreon asks, so many barriers are put up against residential, including proposals to introduce feed-in tariffs. Do you think suburban microgrids are the way to go instead? If so, how can we get there? Residential solar she's talking about. that.
5: Um, you, even more than residential solar. So imagine that I electrify your home uh, professor and very likely you go from using again I actually have the numbers at my fingertips about thirteen or fourteen kilowatt hours per day the average Australian household if you electrify the 1.78 cars in the driveway and you electrify all the other loads they'll need about 34 kilowatt hours so two to three times more delivered electricity to the household. That's if you're doing eighty percent of your vehicle charging at home. So the number, you know your mileage may vary literally in this case, but We're going to need two to three times more electricity delivered. There's some good news about that. That means the cost of distribution grid will go down because it's putting more electricity over largely the same network. But we're not really going to make it all work unless we've deployed as many batteries as we can on the house side. So that's enabling the cars and the household battery, even the appliances and the heating systems to act as storage.
2: Is that kind of the metric, like as many batteries as we can? Like is that... Is this kind of how, when you think about building out a house, do you like look under the floorboards and go, Oh, there could be a good spot there for a few. Yeah. Blocks? We just
5: finished building a new house in San Francisco, which I'm going shortly going back to the U S to sell. Cause we've found out that living in Australia is nicer. Um, <laughs> and, but we went to the extent that we made all of the heating systems into storage. So we can store wow. uh, two days of heat for the whole house in the basement and, five days of hot water in the basement in large storage tanks. That was much, much, much cheaper than battery storage. We also have a battery on the side of the house. We have a 20 kilowatt solar system, um, which is enormous. We we did that because we're designing for the winter minimum, not the summer minimum. Um, So that really, so we will be nearly off grid the whole year. And because we were building a new house, it was sort of fairly easy to do all that. So you definitely need a uh, very, you know, I, I call it grid neutrality to to conjure the ideas of net neutrality, which is all, all packets yeah. of, of data are equal on the internet. You can't prioritize one or the other. I think we need grid neutrality in Australia. So it doesn't know whether you are Origin en- Energy or Jane Smith in Carmel, you get treated the same with your electrons. The solar success story is, and everyone here knows it and there's and and rooftop solar is proliferating literally the cheapest electricity in the world is australian rooftop solar six cents per kilowatt hour after financing because it's installing at 95 cents a watt and being financed at five percent it's crazy to put that in perspective the average cost of electricity in the u.s grid is about 20 cents australian the average whoa that's like more than three times yeah, the average well, the average cost of Australian electricity is twenty five cents a kilowatt hour from the
2: <laughs> So, like no, our normal electricity is like it's like five times more expensive and, than
5: uh, and your, rooftop, and your solar. rooftop solar, so really. And then all of the grid operators will complain. Well, if we have too much rooftop solar, then we're not going to balance the grid at noon because all of it's on, and then we'll have under voltages and over voltages, and they're going to give you all of this reason to not do this project now and we're writing AEMO, which is Australian Electricity Market Operator, is currently writing these rules. It's doing it, I don't really know, but it does not seem to be going in the right direction. We have to be writing these rules now that anticipate there'll be two electric cars in every one of those driveways. The electricity demand is going to go way up, and we need all of those assets to be allowed to play in the electricity market in order to be able to balance the solar and wind heavy grid.
2: It feels weird that AMO is doing that. They're usually really good on this kind of stuff and it seems like a departure from the narrative that they've been kind of building upon over the last year. Do you know what that is? I to?
5: think I, I, yeah, by, by no means are AMO doing the worst in the world. They're doing okay. But there are certainly players putting their thumbs on the scale. One Say it, Saul. Say it. I'm politically <laughs> neutral. I'm centric. <laughs> okay. There may or may not be certain bad agents politically who are putting their hands heavily on the scale to favour locking in coal and natural gas uh, as the source of that grid, also while preventing you from having electric cars, because it's pretty clear that that's how you make this all work out. Yeah. Doesn't that make you
2: incredibly frustrated to be in this country and seeing that happen?
5: I'm really circumspect because I've been in this game for 25 years and I've seen every country fail hugely. And I'm watching the country that apparently we're all thinking is doing great fail a little bit right now. The U.S. is doing pretty good but not great on this stuff, right? And they don't even have a national energy market operator in the U.S. It's like left up to the state. So you have a hodgepodge of insanity. And, you know, in California, PG&E is anything but a good agent and they basically have the monopoly. So uh, you're not the worst in the world, and IEMO has done some good things. I think their sandbox program, so that they could run some of these experiments, was good. But now's just to, to the time to declare the future is coming. We can see it, right? The problem is everyone wants to be technology neutral and still have like, but maybe hydrogen or or tadpoles or guinea pigs will do it. Um, which is a (laughs) bullshit argument about tech, you know, we know which technology is going to win at this point. (laughs) It's going to be rooftop solar. It's going to be electric vehicles. It's going to be batteries of every kind, including thermal storage. And then the problem is load management. And because Australia gets to the finish line first, because we have the cheapest rooftop solar in the world, we get to develop all the technologies that tie the grid together. And then we get to sell that as technology to the rest of the world because we go first. Oh no, let's shoot ourselves in the foot and not have that success story because Interest, large lobby groups with special interests.
2: Now, is it true? I read. I read in the Washington Post profile. You've you've got yourself a, a, a thermal storage in your backyard. You've got a six foot hot tub. Six foot hot tub.
5: So I I curtail my own solar instead of I don't I you know even I wasn't even going to wait for them to take back my um, <laughs> net metering. I just decided to take all my rooftop solar and, and make a hot tub to help me with my arthritic joints.
2: So you actually, you, you don't put any energy into the grid. You just kind of heat the
5: hot tub. Cheapest storage I can do is just take, in, you know, any. Mo- you know, I've got a little simple control system, and anytime I'm overproducing, dump it in the hot tub. If the car, if the car gets plugged in to charge, I charge the car. The uh, car is not plugged in, dump it in the hot tub. Great.
2: And what does that run on? Is it like a little Raspberry Pi or uh, you got a better system?
5: Uh, actually, there's a little, you can buy a little Wi-Fi enabled um, plug that just goes over the electric plug and then there's a pretty fabulous open source set of software called homeassistant.io and you can you can make it sort of, even with my terrible levels of programming ability, make it work good enough. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to
2: kind of that thermal storage. When you say that's thermal storage, uh, other than being used as a hot tub, can you can you reconvert that storage into
5: electricity? No. I just know that I'm going to want to have a hot tub two days more. <laughs>
2: All right, so I want to ask you a quick question about, you know, your work and trying to be as effective on the largest scale you can be. With the other lab, you know, out of San Francisco, you know, it's just a a group of really dedicated people doing interesting things, but you've worked at such high levels with that small group of people. Did you ever think, you know, oh, me and my mates in San Francisco would be able to have this kind of effect across so much from our little office in San Francisco?
5: I didn't. And I think actually this year has been really educational to me because I've pretty much spent my whole life in the. I'm a technology person and then work on things I believe in and care about. And so we've done a lot of impact in big solar and big wind and hydrogen all and a lot of things and air conditioning systems. But this year, here's a funny story for you. So when I was marrying my wife, uh, before we were married, I was like, oh, climate's not heading in the right direction. If um, <laughs> It was like 2007 or something. I'm like, if the world isn't moving in the right direction by 2020, can I become an eco-terrorist? Because, like, I'm a <laughs> trained, MIT PhD, I understand infrastructure systems all the way I can build robots that can make it and, you know, stop <laughs> <clears throat> pipelines and coal trains and the whole thing. And she's, you know. 2020 was years and years and years away at that point. She said, No, no, you, 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 absolutely, that's fine. If we haven't done enough action by then. Anyway, 2019 came around and obviously the world hadn't done enough. And I was like, Hey, wifey, can I become the unicommer next year? And she said, No, you have an 11 year old and a six year old. Why don't you take the year off to do politics and see if you can work from the inside? And the lesson is actually quite beautiful. How much done you can get with volunteerism is really amazing and then with our experience in the us we started an organization called rewiring america with a, an entrepreneur colleague and uh we sort of built this lobbying organization as though it was a tech startup i think there was some good lessons there and that was the right thing to do but the real lesson that's impactful and i think i want everyone to hear it is like if we hadn't showed up large sections of the climate policy wouldn't have been written There was no one in that swim lane. Like what the people don't, what we don't recognise is that in most Western governments, we've got to the civil service and policy has to come from somewhere. Policy doesn't get written by a civil public service very much anymore. Policy gets written by whoever can afford to show up. You know, who can afford to show up? It's the natural gas industry and it's the oil industry. Um, the only other people who can afford to show up can afford to show up because they're free, or they're volunteers, or they're passionate, and so we've had an outsized impact with a tiny. It really does feel like the the rebellion from Star Wars. Tiny set of like, poorly dressed people with wacky <laughs> equipment has been out of fight toe to toe with the you know most powerful lobbying industry in the world, natural U.S. natural gas industry, and we've won a few battles. And I just, we just need to do that on global scale. Like, you know, there's absolutely no fucking reason at all to be optimistic about our trajectory on climate, except for what my mother says to me. And I kind of really believe this. She's like, the middle class parents have awoken from their slumber and they're angry because you're screwing their children. I'm like, I actually (laughs) feel like there's a whole bunch of dad bods and, like, you know, slightly hippie yeah. mamas who are just, like, ready to fucking rumble now. And and, and yeah. I just want them all to feel fully engaged and, like, you know what? You only need three of you to show up to a city council meeting and you can change the rates, the electricity rates. We yeah. just got to, like, we've had 150 years of of regulations written for fossil fuels. we got to undo it all in five years and it's going to take an army of, like people with a few spare hours from the middle class showing up to the right hearings, becoming a voice, you know, everyone writing to their local member to be like, honestly, I want pro we want electric vehicle charging in this parking lot and in front of the school and next to the church. And we want this, we want that. And then show up to the meetings and make it happen. Like the army that needs to be built in one or two years here is the army in the middle. That's been unheard of in this debate so far.
2: This is the so called quiet Australians. Is this who you're talking about
5: here? It might, it might be. It, it could, it, that might be exactly what I mean. Um, anyway, my kids in the sixth grade at the, at the local public school, which is just, you know, magical public school. Looks like it was built in the 1950s in the Australian, you know, it's, it's 100 yards from the beach at, at, at all, It's amazing. The term assignment last year was. Design a sustainable house, and you know my son, being my son, tells us the night before, oh, I've got to take a project into the school tomorrow. It's got to be a sustainable <laughs> house, and I don't want to do it at all. And i was like, well, okay, well, we have to do something. You got to build it. So, what do you want to build? And he's like, oh, can we build a floating city? Because really, I don't like cars that much, and they kill all the wombats, and I love wombats. And that. and then like we killed too many fish. So, why don't we just have no suburbs and we just build a floating city? And then we sat down, we did calculations. It turns out, if you, you built twelve giant Twelve Hindenburgs, four times bigger than Hindenburgs, you could lift all of the <laughs> suburb of Austin right? <laughs> <laughs> So we made a cardboard model of that, and it was, you know, duct tape and and marker pen. It was awful, but kind of cool. And I was really proud that he had this concept and the boldness to go and deliver this weird thing. Anyway, as we're <laughs> we go to drop him off, and you got to help him carry his UFO into the class, and every single other, you could tell every single other. Project had hundreds of nervous parent hours engaged in it, and they were like perfect architectural models of exactly the house that they currently live in, with solar cells on the roof, chicken coops, and electric cars. Yeah, and it told me something really profound. Like, we'll absolutely go with you and and having a sustainable Australia, but it needs to be in the house that looks a lot like the house I currently own, and it needs to have cars that are shaped like the cars that I currently own, and you know, okay, we'll have it, I'll add a chicken coop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to say there's a lack of imagination? In no, Australia? I
5: actually think we've got it really good and the quiet Australians are quiet because they've got it really good and they don't want you to take their really good away. And we yeah. can't sell a climate. We've had such a successful cultural war and campaign on the negatives that would happen to Australia if we went for solving climate change, as opposed to, you know, what I can give you that chicken coop. I'm going to give you an even bigger solar system than you think, and there's going to be two shiny electric cars, and you'll save money, and there'll be an extra two million dollars in the uh, two million jobs in the economy because Australia has such prolific renewable resources and such low population density that we are the natural foundry for the world. And instead of exporting black rocks, we should export. Crush red rocks in the form of steel which is what we used to do and we should not give away our bauxite at a you know a hundred dollars a ton we should make it into aluminum and and make a thousand dollars a ton and if we do that you know we can in fact be the luckiest country like there is no country as well set up to solve this problem and i think because we are the luckiest country we also have a little bit of them moral responsibility to show the world that it, how it can be done and be the good news story, right? I just desperately would love gold at Glasgow, right? We, we want to win all the fucking Olympic medals except for the one that counts.
2: Oh, hang on. Before we talk to Glasgow, I just want to share with you this, um, this video I made. A message from the Quiet Australians. Hi, I'm John Citizen of the Quiet
0: Australians. You may have heard of us. Or maybe not. We're very quiet. For too long, we've almost been silenced. But no longer. It's time for us to speak up. Figuratively speaking, what do we believe? Well, we believe whatever it's politically convenient to believe in. This includes economic growth at all costs, dispatchable coal power, franking credit credits, quarterly tax cuts, trickle-down economics, fracking, land clearing, and keeping refugees locked up indefinitely, like Jesus would have done. Also, if you can't afford to see a doctor, you should die. Public education should be privatised. So should the army. And we believe that politicians are undervalued and underpaid. Why are we so quiet, you ask? Because no one would want to be heard advocating for shit like this. But the quiet Australians aren't alone. We've got the backing of the silent majority. Isn't that right, Therese Jenkins, president of the silent majority? (laughs)
2: No, the Thanks for that glowing endorsement,
0: Therese. The quiet Australians. We're so quiet, it's almost like we don't exist.
2: Now, let's talk about COP quickly. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left um, and I just wanted to get your position on COP. Like, what would you like to see happen for Australia's climate ambition at COP?
5: Let me say a couple of things. So I read the 3,494 pages of the IPCC AR6 report and um, because that's the kind of thing I do. I read the footnotes. And what's really distressing is the two best scenarios, SSP1 1.9 and SSP1 2.6. They're the technical names for these scenarios. They both model in more negative emissions mid-century than is probably economically or physically possible. So even our best case scenarios as presented by the IPCC are now kind of unrealistic. So the urgency is even more urgent than you think because very likely those negative emissions won't come in to save our day. We shouldn't be banking on it the way that the politicians who go to COP will be banking on those emissions. So if you asked me for best possible outcome for COP26 would be and I think it's it's not impossible and and I actually think you could nearly get everyone here to make this possible you have to believe it's not it's possible until it's proven otherwise but like Scott Morrison goes when it gets around to his turn to speak which will probably be last because everyone's already thinks we're hopeless on this issue he says you know what we have been hopeless on this issue you know what We have been responsible for more than our share of emissions and we've been a prolific exporter of coal and LNG for so long that we sort of have a burden. But you know what? I've looked at this and I've had my best people look at the economics for Australian households and we've had it backwards. We've not been embracing the future because we've been scared of losing our coal industry. But what I now know to be true and understand is that Every Australian household will save money and will have a healthier citizenry and will save prolific costs. What the money, every dollar we save in the household will save a dollar in the healthcare system because we won't have children with asthma because they're growing up in a home heated with natural gas or using a natural gas stuff. And I promise to you, the world, that we do that by 2030 because that's possible in Australia and we will electrify our households. The vaccination against climate change is electrification And just as we did with our lockdowns, we went hard and we went early and we're going to go hard and we're going to go early on climate as well. That 10 years will buy us enough time that we will invest in our industry because we are the exporter of note of iron, aluminum, uranium, copper. We're going to add to that lithium, silicon, other precious uh, metals. uh, And... We will more than pull our weight in the 2030-2040 period as we decarbonize our whole export industry, which will be doing the world a service because we will be providing you with the green metals that will help you rebuild your electric infrastructure that solves climate change ahead of even the most ambitious schedule under the SSPs. And that is a believable story. That is an achievable outline. Wow, that was that was great. Did you
2: have you written this up in like Comic Sans, uh, 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 double space, font for Scott? You're uh, going to give it I to him. I was going to
5: write it in Sharpie on a in cap all caps <laughs> on a piece of paper and put it in front of the teleprompter. <laughs> so that is possible, right? And that is what we should be doing. And it is, in fact, good for everyone. It's good for us. It's good for the householders. It's savings in the suburbs. It's jobs in the regions. It's it it. it, it puts us back in the good graces of the world's nations for not being a planet fucking hypocrite. So um, until that doesn't happen, I want to believe that that's the outcome. And if Australia did that, you've already seen it, right? Germany announced a whole bunch of car companies will eliminate petrol cars by 2035. Then it became 2030. And then England's like, all right, 2025, right? So. Ambition's going to beget more ambition. If Australia could come up and say, "You know what, President Biden, that was pretty good, but we, are, you know, what serious looks like in this battle? This is serious. This is, you know, we got more to lose than you. We have the Great Barrier Reef, right? We, 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 we know it's written into the native poetry. Sunburned country, land, you know, uh, rugged mountain ranges, and and it's tough and it's hard, and we're going to get it tougher and harder than anyone else with climate change. So I want you to step up to the ambition level that we just set. And we will lead the world and we will show you how to do the the uh, electricity market rules that make this possible. For example, we'll we'll run that experiment for the world. That is what we could do, and that is what I want. And so right now I'm largely just offering myself to all political persuasions to help them, you know, I've done the numbers and the research and I can show them the rigorous analysis and 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 you know, try to win some hearts and minds with PowerPoints. I know it didn't work that well for Al Gore, but it's got to work for someone eventually, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, so I don't want to hear your your backup options for COP26 because I'm so buoyed by the best possible scenario <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on greatest moral podcast of our generation I followed your work for about 15 years since uh, when I was on Hungry Beast researching you know Mark and I power back in the day so it's a real honor and a privilege to uh, have you on my podcast all those years
5: later uh, straight back actually was super fun too thank you you're listening to the greatest
2: moral podcast of our generation Saul Griffith, there what a great conversation i I really liked it. I don't know if you could tell. I really enjoyed that conversation. <laughs> Super smart guy trying his best to get politicians all over the world to bend towards science. Now, you can learn more about Saul because you've got a book coming out, October 12th, Electrify, an optimist's roadmap to our clean energy future. It's going to be published by MIT Press. So, October 12th, um, put that date in your diary. Give yourself a reminder to get a copy of Electrify. You should be able to get it. We're all oh, good books, sold. Big thanks to Roadmarks, the Bertha Foundation, Lindo, and, of course, Jacob Brown on the Teppanyaki Timeline. He is a master craftsman. Is the reason irrational fear always sounds so top shelf? So thank you very much, Jacob. Probably the reason why we are ranked 97 in the best podcasts in Australia. Oh, soon we're going to be 95, and won't that change everything for us? Please, if you do enjoy these chats we have on the greatest moral podcast of our generation and irrational fear, head on over to our Patreon. Uh, we're currently sitting at about 2,000, which is great. That covers the costs, but I would love to start. Uh, you know earning money from this myself and, uh, you know, making this my full-time job and also employing a whole bunch of other people as well to work on it, including comedians and producers and video people and social media people. This is going to be a great enterprise once we hit that $10,000 mark. So please head on over to patreon.com forward slash a rational fear. Also, you know, what's great about it is if this becomes my full-time job, I don't have to take a job as a management consultant and nobody wants that. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Um, We'll see you next Friday for a rational fear. Heath Franklin is going to be on that show, so it should be fun.